Welcome. What a wonderful day to gather before the Lord. Though your sins be like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. It's a wonderful thing to see on the Lord's Day morning. Just a, a highlight um, of an announcement in your bulletin. Um, we have a CPR class scheduled for a week from Monday. Um, today would be the last day to, to sign up. That's not, uh, I mean, if you forget to sign up, that's not a, a deal breaker, but it does help us to know how many will be in attendance. So that sign-up sheet is on the table in the back. Beloved, let us join our hearts together in prayer and ask the Lord to bless this time that we spend together in worship. We'll pray silently and then close by praying together. Father, you know the busyness of our lives and how readily our minds race from one thing to another. We pray that you would focus our minds and our hearts upon you this day, that we might receive the refreshment that you alone can give, and that we might give you the glory that you so abundantly deserve. This we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together. The Lord calls us to worship with these words from Psalm 33. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. Congregation of our Lord Jesus, from where does your help come? Our help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Hear now his greeting. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from Christ Jesus, our Savior and our Lord. Amen. Let's sing praise together to him from Psalter Hymnal 57, the blue book 57, stanzas 1, 2, 5, and 6.
The Lord speaks to us in the words of his law from Exodus 20, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the, ho- out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and who keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you, nor your son or your daughter, nor your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and he rested on the Sabbath day, the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant or his female servant, his ox or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Jesus beautifully summarized that law by saying that we are called to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and with all our strength. This, he said, is the first and the great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Two commands that summarize all the law and all the prophets. Two commands that, like the ten humble us because they reveal to us how impossible it would be for us to stand on our own on the basis of what we have done what we have accomplished this law it calls us to confess both our sin and unworthiness and our trust in the Lord believing that he and he alone is able to remove our guilt And to regard us as righteous and holy because of his son. So let's confess together our need for Jesus Christ. Our need for the forgiveness and the righteousness that he alone can bring. As we sing together the start of Psalm 51. We find that in selection 94 of our Blue Psalter hymnal. Number 94 we'll sing all four stanzas.
For all who pray that earnestly, God has promised that His Son has accomplished everything necessary to save us. Speaking to a people who had thus confessed their faith and put their trust in Christ, the Apostle Paul declared in Ephesians 3, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and uh, height and depth And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen indeed. Before we turn to the Lord in prayer, I'd like to welcome uh, Dale DeYoung as a full professing member at the church. Uh, we have gotten to know Dale for quite a while as, uh, as Michaela's husband, and uh, we appreciate you, brother. We're glad to, to receive you. We pray that you would be blessed as a member of grace and that you would be a blessing to the saints to whom you are joined. Um, if you haven't gotten the opportunity to visit with Dale, uh, to put a a face to the name, make sure you greet him afterward. Um, In addition, we have a few prayer concerns. Um, We've been praying for Joel Mulder uh, with his chemotherapy, which has not gone all that smoothly uh, to this point. Uh, They're starting a uh, a new plan. Uh, which will involve oral medications daily, and that will go indefinitely. So pray that that would be effective and helpful. Um, Linda Smith, a little update on her. She has surgery scheduled now uh, March 15th at the Mayo Clinic uh, to remove uh, blockage to her colon and hopefully to perform a, a procedural procedure to return system function to normal. So uh, be in prayer that not just that the surgery would go well, but um, that all the plans that have to be lined up to allow her to undergo that surgery would go well. Um, Dan Van Enns has been receiving chemotherapy for cancer. He has treatment uh, again this week on Tuesday. So pray for continued strength and healing and encouragement there. Um, Norm DeWeird uh, was able recently to see relief from an infection and his uh, cancer, prostate cancer, uh, is now being treated long-term with oral medications and occasional injections. So praise the Lord for his healing mercies and, uh, and many answers to prayer. And um, then one other, we prayed last Sunday evening for Joe Greenwich's stepfather, Gary McDonald. Um, he and Joe's mom have been wintering in Florida. He ended up in the hospital due to um, covid And they discovered an arterial blockage that requires a triple bypass. Um, However, they're they're not able to or not willing to do surgery until he is clear of COVID. So um, they're planning to drive back to Michigan for the surgery. So pray for 
God to just continue to provide and, and strengthen him all of um, that he can come back up here and get his surgery. Um, and then finally, you'll note in your announcement bulletin um, that today is Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. It's the Sunday that we normally, up to this point, have acknowledged our grief at the Supreme Court decision of Roe v. Wade and prayed for a reversal of that and a repentance of our land. God answered our prayers last year in overturning Roe v. Wade. For that, we need to show our gratitude. At the same time, it's deep in the division in our land and deepened the commitment of many ungodly folks in our land to legalize the murder of children. We need to pray for repentance and for renewal and revitalization of hearts. So, let's do that. O Lord, our Heavenly Father, we come before you this day with gratitude because we know the darkness of our own hearts and yet we've seen you turn us to the light. We've seen you work to bring about transformation within us and we're so grateful. And we confess that we need what you alone can provide. Not just forgiveness from sin, as great and as wonderful as that is, but also transformation of our lives, that we might show our gratitude and that we might stand in this faith by which we've been joined to Christ. And we know, Lord, that we cannot do any of that apart from you. So we commit ourselves to you, acknowledging that our hope and our strength and our very life rest in you alone. Father, we thank you for bringing Dale to us and for joining him to this congregation as well as bringing him to Michaela. Lord, we, we pray that you would continue to bless and strengthen Dale in his walk with you and in his being knit together with the church here at Grace. We pray that you would Continue to meet his needs and strengthen him and to enable us uh, to serve him even as he serves us. Lord, we pray for all of our members. You know those who are struggling and those who are weak. You know those who are brought low physically, emotionally or spiritually. And you know exactly what their needs are. Father, we pray that you would meet their needs as only you are able. That you would set in their lives reminders of your love and your steadfast care. That you would build up what Satan has sought to tear down. And that you would use us as brothers and sisters to come and walk alongside of those who are struggling and those who have stumbled that they might through us experience your loving kindness. Father, we lay before you all of the needs of this congregation. You know the physical struggles that so many have experienced through cancer and, and other ailments. We ask that you would provide the healing and the help and the strength that each one needs. Father, we think of um, Dan 
as he prepares for chemotherapy treatment this week, we ask that you would provide for him as only you are able. We pray for uh, Joel with his new regimen of chemotherapy. We pray that you would continue to uh, bring about healing and strength for him. We pray for others of our number who are receiving treatment for cancer, for uh, Bruce and Jamie and Bob and Norm. We ask that you would provide for them and for others who are uh, dealing with long-term ailments. Father, we pray for um, Marge as she recovers from broken bones and, and an infection and various other ailments. Lord, provide the comfort and the strength that she needs. And also for Joe's father, uh, stepfather, Gary, we pray that you would provide safe travel back home and healing from COVID and that you would uh, work everything out that his surgery would be able to go well. We think also of Linda as she prepares for surgery in March and as she and Bruce see all of the hurdles that need to be overcome in order to have that surgery we pray that you would allow those roadblocks to fall one at a time by your strength. That we might rejoice at your perfect provision. And indeed we do rejoice. For you have answered so many prayers. You have brought so much healing. You have comforted us in our grief. We pray that you would continue to comfort, to provide and to build up. Lord, we pray for our number, for those of our number who can't be with us this day. For those who are distant from us, we think of, of Peter in the army over in Europe. We pray that you would bless and strengthen him. For Kel and Beth as they're down in Florida uh, working with RMS, we pray that you would make their work to be effective in spreading the gospel. For our other members who are traveling and also for those who are absent because of hardened hearts, Lord, we pray that you would provide for each one the strength, the encouragement, the challenge according to each one's need. And we pray that you would restore and refresh each one. And Lord, we pray this for your church at large. We rejoiced last year at the overturning of a wicked court decision from 1973 that resulted in some 62 million children being murdered in the womb. And yet despite that court case being struck down, that court ruling being struck down, yet today thousands of infants are murdered within the womb daily. And we grieve. We grieve at the injustice of that act. But we grieve also at the hard-heartedness of our countrymen and at the apathy of your people who have done relatively little to stop it. And we pray, Father, that you would send forth your Spirit to work a massive change in the hearts of many. We know that mere laws cannot stop the wickedness 
that is typified by abortion. When one procedure is outlawed, other procedures are developed. When abortion centers are picketed or closed, at-home drugs are used. We know that the only true remedy, the only true means of repentance has to come from a change of heart. As you reveal both the misery and the emptiness of sin, but also the joy and the hope of salvation in Christ. And so, Father, we pray that you would send your spirit to the hearts of a multitude. That many might recognize the darkness in which they are living and grieve it. That they might see the emptiness of living in their sin and being identified by their sin and might crave reconciliation to Christ. And Father, we pray that you would use us, us here at Grace, us, your people in every place where we are gathered, that you would fill us both with a conviction of our calling to tell others about your Son and also with a love for our neighbor that compels us to love them and to speak to them and to urge them to turn and be saved. Father, we pray that you would use us to speak to our neighbors, to speak to our friends, to speak to our family members, to tell them how much they need you and how willing you are to receive. Equip us by your word that we might be able easily to tell them the truth. And indeed, Lord, work in our lives that we might learn to turn from our sin, that we might no longer be identified by our rebellion, but that instead we might see ourselves as we are truly your sons and daughters, beloved because of Christ, rescued from our sins and called to a life of holiness. To that end, Lord, I pray that you would bless our fellowship, our catechizing, our family visiting, our our worship to transform us and renew us in the image of Christ. And now as we look to your word, we pray that you would allow it to be proclaimed with all faithfulness and truth. And that you would grant our hearts the strength to receive it and be turned by it more fully unto you. May you be glorified through our worship, through our words, through our all. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, as we, as we prepare to look together to God's word... Let's stand and acknowledge the faithfulness of God throughout our years, throughout our generations, always upholding His covenant promise to us. As we stand and sing together, Psalter Hymnal 176, surrendering of Psalm 90, we'll sing all the stanzas of 176.
Well, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 3. As we draw near to the end of this letter, the Apostle begins turning our focus away from the present distress in which we live and toward the future. And this is kind of a transitional passage in that respect. He reminds us of what is coming in the future, but with the focus still on right now, on understanding the age in which we live, on being well prepared to live in this particular age. So we're going to look this morning at the first nine verses of chapter 3, the first nine verses. Peter says, this is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the, word, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Amen. Beloved of God the Father, because of Jesus, his son. Do you ever look around you or maybe read the latest headlines or even just watch people and wonder why does God allow it all to continue? Why does he keep tolerating our sinful race? Why doesn't he demand that everyone answer for all of the sins that they continue to commit? Have you ever asked those questions? I know I have. Usually on days when I look at the statistics for abortion or when I study the news accounts and see the wickedness that is foisted upon the youth in our state schools, even at times in our Christian schools. Or when I myself am personally offended and grieved, I wonder, how long will God tolerate all of this? How long until He brings the fullness of justice on the world? And yet, the sun still rises, the sun still sets, the world still goes on, the judgment still tarries. And we wonder why. But that's not new, that wondering. Nor is it new for people to give wrong answers to that. 
assuming that there will be no day of answering, that there will be no time of ending it all, that it's always going to go on like this, so we might as well just enjoy it, accept it, become part of it. Those same questions, those same attitudes, those same wrong answers have always been around. And that's why Peter wrote the text that we just read. But he didn't answer those questions and deal with the wrong answers by simply telling folks, you know what, just be, be patient, don't question the Lord, it's beyond you. No. What he does instead is he says, yes, there will be folks who answer this wrongly. And yes, we desire an end to it all. But understand what God is doing. Understand that the delay is for our good. That the delay, in fact, reveals something absolutely wonderful about our God. And so that's what this text before us reveals. That the delay of God's day of judgment actually reveals divine compassion. The delay of the day of judgment reveals divine compassion. And the first thing we see about that is that this delay, this time of waiting, is actually a time that is filled with persistent encouragement. Notice how Peter begins this text. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up Your sincere mind by way of reminder. His goal is to stir up his readers. The word there is the one you would use if you were walking into your teenager's room very late on a Sunday morning. You'd say, wake up! Arise! Let's go! That's what he's doing. He's trying to awaken them. They're slumbering. They're... they're at ease. And he says, you must not be at ease. You must not go with the flow. You must not just go along to get along. No. You have to wake up. You have to remember the things that you've learned, the things that you know within your mind and heart. Because you see, there are many who know the truth about God and do nothing about it. They know who He is, but they ignore Him. They recognize what He has done, but... Eh. Like the demons who saw the truth about Jesus, confessed the truth about Jesus, but rejected him. So these folks are tempted to let the seed lie unsprouted in their hearts. And so Peter aims to awaken them, stirring up their minds to respond to that end. He reminds them of the predictions of the holy prophets. As members of the church, these folks knew the scriptures. He's referring to the Old Testament, the law of Moses, the writings of the prophets, the writings that were historical. All of them foretold the coming of Christ. All of them promised what Jesus would accomplish. All of them called the people to repent and believe and live according to their faith. And so he says, don't forget what you've heard. Don't forget what you've learned. What it said, what those 
scriptures, what those prophets said about the coming of the Messiah, about the salvation that God would work. It's been done. Jesus accomplished it. Don't forget. And furthermore, he says, remember the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. What the apostles wrote was not their word, but the word that Jesus required them to write and inspired through them by the Holy Spirit. And right at the heart of all that they wrote was the commandment of Christ. Mark 12. One of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that he answered them well, asked Jesus, which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, the most important is hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Jesus came not proclaiming something utterly new and foreign. He came proclaiming that which the prophets had already spoken. You are called to love the Lord your God with all that you are and all that you have. And then he said in John 14, Believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. The most radical act of love we can show toward God is believing that Jesus is his Son, believing that he came to fulfill all that God promised, believing that in him we have the fulfillment of all that God would do for us. This is the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. The chief act of which is to believe on Jesus Christ as your Savior, which belief, which faith will invariably transform everything. This is what you must remember, Peter says. Don't just blend in with the world. Don't just go along with whatever feels right. Remember what you were taught. Remember what God has done. Remember who you are. And he reminds them persistently. This is the second time he's written them. We think, well, so what? I got 18 texts on my phone yesterday. Two messages is nothing. But when paper is exceedingly rare and there's no postal service and you have to commission someone to deliver this in person over hundreds of miles, and by the way, there's no mass transportation, two letters is a big deal. He was persistent in reminding them of what they knew, in striving to awaken them. And God continues to persist today with His people. Young people. Every time you gather with the church for worship, the Lord is persistently seeking to awaken in you the remembrance of who He is and what He's done and who you are as a result. Children, when you gather together in catechism class and they drill those same old things into your head and you think, didn't we learn that last year? Yes, you did. You're going to learn it next year too because it's that important. Families, when those elders come and they sit in your living room and they open up God's word and they seek to apply it to your life, it's for this reason. 
God himself is seeking to awaken in you a passion for the truth that you know, for the command of Christ, for the prophecies that he has fulfilled, for the the absolute transformation of life which it demands. That's what he's doing in this age. That's his purpose for you while the judgment tarries. That you would awaken to passion toward Christ. That you would not slumber, but would take up those truths that he has revealed, would take up the reality of what Christ has accomplished and would live it, would embrace it, would delight in it. However, not everyone possesses that faith or that passion. And in the next section of our text, Peter warns us that there will come scoffers. And that leads us to our second point. This delay in the day of judgment is a delay that's misinterpreted by purposeful, by intentional scoffers. Now, what are scoffers? Kids, what is that? What is that word? When you scoff at something, you mock it, you ridicule it, you make fun of it. If you and your siblings, and I hope you don't, but if you and your siblings make fun of the way dad gives you your chores on Saturday, that's scoffing, right? Or if when the teacher leaves the room, somebody, you know, makes fun of her and and mocks her, that's scoffing. Scoffing is wicked. It's an act of rebellion. But scoffers were foretold to come against God and His church in the last days. And those last days began when Jesus ascended, which means that we can expect scoffers right up until Jesus returns. No surprise, the scoffers come scoffing and following their own sinful desires. Now, rebellion, of course, is born of a sinful desire. Desire to be freed from God's sovereignty. But so are lying rather than telling the truth, stealing rather than working so one might share, giving in to lust instead of guarding your heart, coveting rather than cultivating a love for what God has given you. The point is these scoffers are driven from the heart by desires that stand contrary to God's commands. We need to remember that. Because the goal of these scoffers is not upright, it's not righteous, They'll try to sell it to you as, well, I just want you to be well informed. I want you to to not ignore the reality in which we live. No, their desire is really to get you to rebel. Their desire is to get you to become just as much a child of hell as they are. But they do it by alleging that they're aiming for enlightenment. They ask these Questions that inspired doubt. Where is the promise of his coming? Ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Now the implication of those questions is wicked. They're suggesting that despite Jesus' promise that he's going to come back, that he's going to judge all of mankind, he was either wrong or he was lying. That's evil. Even the suggestion is poisonous. And yet these scoffers purport to offer evidence. They say, well, look, ever since the fathers, ever since Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, everything's continued as it has. 
Nothing changes. God doesn't intervene. And they try to get you to believe. There won't come a day of reckoning. There won't come a day of standing before the Lord. That's a fairy tale. We don't have to worry about that. To thine own self be true. Don't worry about being true to anyone else, including God, because what we have today is what we're always going to have. They want you to doubt that you'll answer for what you do. They want you to doubt that a better day is coming. Don't wait on God to make it all better. Depend on you. Trust in you. They want you to doubt God. Because they hate Him, they want to rob Him of His glory. And because the more people they can get to agree with them, the more people they can get to doubt the promise of Jesus coming, the more they can silence the voice of their conscience which tells them, you're going to stand before Him one day. But Peter points out that their scoffing lacks historical accuracy. Verse 5, they deliberately overlook this fact. Hold on a minute. That means they know. In their hearts, in their minds, they know what he's about to disclose. But they deliberately overlook it. They deliberately turn aside from it because that would hurt. That would reveal the ugliness and the emptiness of that in which they're trusting. They deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. They reject the memory that God formed the world. They don't want to recognize that God is so powerful that He spoke and it was. They don't want to acknowledge the fact that that God organized order out of the chaos and that He did it for His own glory and for our good. These scoffers are desperate to deny God's creative work because if it's true, that means that God is more powerful than any man ever was or will be, that God has authority over everything that exists, and that God's word is true. Unbelievers are desperate to deny the creative power and the sovereignty of our God. So desperate that in Peter's age, they were willing to believe the unbelievable fiction of the Greek and Roman gods. In our age, they believe the laughable fables that everything arose unguided from an all-encompassing Big Bang. And that chaos, without any intelligent guidance, gave rise to order. And that living beings arose randomly from simple beings. And that complex beings... Or, I'm sorry, living beings arose through non-life and that, that complex beings arose from simple beings. It's, it's nonsensical, folks. It's utterly and completely illogical. But they would prefer the illogic of it all. They would prefer to believe that fable rather than to believe that God made all of that, designed all of that, pays attention to all of that, and then necessarily, logically, also pays attention to, oversees, cares about us more. 
They overlook that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. By means of the word of God, by means of the sovereignty of God, God brought judgment that destroyed absolutely everything that drew breath with the the very tiny exception of eight people and the animals they brought onto an ark. That terrifies the unbeliever more than creation. Creation means God exists and is sovereign. The flood means that God cares. That God sees. That God judges. And so they reject it. Some reject it very intelligently by saying, no, it was just a local flood. And that local flood was infused by Moses with a spiritual importance to teach Israel a spiritual lesson, but it wasn't really what he said it was. That's sneaky. Others just deny it altogether. They say what we read in Genesis 6 through 9 is just a religious allegory. But it never really happened at all. Laughably, they suggest that worldwide layers of sandstone originated as ancient deserts, ignoring the fact that sand does not become sandstone without the addition of copious quantities of water to cause it to be concrete. They ignore the the reality or devise silly theories to explain away the abundance of aquatic fossils throughout that allegedly desert sand. They go to impressive lengths, suggest implausible scenarios because the alternative is utterly and completely unthinkable to them. That God sees our evil and will cause us to answer for it. That God will judge those who stand opposed to Him and to His will. Because if they don't deny the creation and if they don't deny the flood, then they won't be able to deny That by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. That's the conclusion that the unbeliever, that the scoffer is desperate to reject. And yet it's the obvious conclusion from history. Think of it. If God is the sovereign creator, having all power over mankind and his world, having all authority over all that occurs, if God already has shown a willingness to judge those who rebel against him, and if he has promised to return to us in the person of his son as judge, what's the obvious conclusion? That when the Son returns, He will judge every single person according to their willingness to acknowledge Him as King and demonstrate that by their obedience. And those who are found to have fallen short, those who are found to have stood against Him, will suffer His wrath. That the scoffer will not tolerate. But my friends, recognize Despite the claims of postmodern fools throughout our culture, believing something doesn't make it true. You can echo the mockery of the scoffers to the great delight of a rebellious world. You can write scholarly tomes advancing evolutionist views to deny God's power. 
You can join the elitist philosophers in mocking the simpletons who believe the world was once covered by a flood. You can make a discipline of silencing your conscience so as to pretend you will never answer for your deeds. But none of that changes the reality of what is coming. That there will be a day of reckoning for every single one of us. That every single soul will stand before the judgment bench and will answer for every word lightly spoken, every thought heedlessly held, much less every deed done. Far better that we acknowledge that truth today. Far better that rather than waiting for that day, we bow the knee before the Lord now. Repent of our sins now. Seek forgiveness and help and life today so that on that day we can hear, well done, good and faithful servant because He's looking not at us but at Christ in us. Amen? And so, we see the purpose of the age in which we live. This delay of the judgment, it might be misinterpreted by scoffers, but it is in fact a delay arising from the perfect patience of our God, which is the last thing we see here. This final section of our text begins with Peter pointing out God's unique perspective on time. You see... Folks get all doubtful because Jesus has delayed his coming. I mean, they were, they were expressing those doubts already in Peter's age. And that was less than a hundred years after Jesus ascended. Well less, well under. For us, it's been 2,000 years. People say, well, if he was going to come back, he'd have come back by now. Surely he wouldn't have waited this long, says Who? Peter points out God is an eternal being who dwells in eternity. It's hard for us, it's almost impossible for us to wrap our heads around eternity. Because we live in time. A minute is a whole lot shorter than a month. A year seems incalculably longer than a second. We count everything by the time. We're always looking at clocks. We're always checking our time, following our schedule. But God lives outside of time. That means that a second, a month, a millennium, they really don't mean a whole lot different. In the light of an endlessness of time that has no beginning, that has no end, a millennium really isn't that long. It's really not calculable. And what that means is that we need to stop focusing on how much time has passed and focus instead on what God is doing in that administration of time. God, says Peter, has not been slow to fulfill His promise the way some count slowness. The promise that He is fulfilling is the promise of Jesus to return and judge mankind. And also the promise of the Father to gather together those whom He has chosen to be their God and to make them His people. 
And the promise at the same time to make all things new, removing all the stain of sin. The Lord is not slow. The Lord is not negligent concerning these promises. But instead, He has delayed His return as a display of His perfect patience. Peter highlights in the final verse that God is not eager to punish folks. He's no kid on Christmas morning, barely able to restrain his delight at punishing people. That's not our God. He doesn't take a dark delight in destroying the wicked, yet at the same time neither is he willing to overlook their rebellion. Instead, he is the one who declared of himself in Exodus 34, the Lord, the Lord God, a merciful and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. That is who our God is. That is His gracious and just character, and that is why He has instituted the delay in which we now live. Now let me clear up what I believe is a a slight misreading of this last verse. Verse 9 is sometimes cited. This is a big misreading, by the way. It's sometimes cited by uh, folks who hold to the false doctrine of Arminianism as proof of unlimited atonement. God is not willing that any should perish, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And they cite that and they say, see, Jesus died for everyone. God's just waiting, hoping, wishing that someone, that more people would turn to Christ. And if they do, Jesus has already paid the debt. And if they don't, he's still already paid the debt. They just didn't make use of that. But, but God longs to save more people. That's why he's waiting. That's, that's why he's hoping. And many Reformed people answer that claim by pointing out first that there are texts that clearly state that Jesus died specifically for the elect. That's the truth. In John 10, for instance, Jesus states quite clearly that his sheep know him. They hear his voice. They follow after him. And he says, I am the good sheep, or the good shepherd. I know my own, and they know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know my Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. He doesn't lay down his life for everyone without distinction. He lays down his life for the sheep, for the ones who know him, for the ones who will come. And this text, 2 Peter 3, they say, well, it it points not to God's will of decree, indicating what must occur, but to his will of disposition, indicating his general character, that he longs for people to turn to him, that he doesn't delight in the destruction of the wicked. And that is true. Ezekiel 18, Ezekiel 33, they make it very clear that God doesn't delight in punishing the wicked. But what we read here, that's not the focus. Peter speaks here regarding God's promise to you. That is to us who stand by faith in the grace and the peace that come through Jesus Christ. He's addressing God's elect to whom the promise of salvation has come. And then he says that God is not willing that any should perish, 
but that all should reach repentance. What is the antecedent? What is the implied subject of any and all? Is it not the subject specified earlier in the sentence? Grammatically, yes. So any refers to you, the people of God. All refers to you, the people of God. Read what Peter says with that in mind. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, but He is patient toward you, the church, the people of God, not willing that any of you should perish, but that all of you should reach repentance. The return of Jesus He delays to ensure that all of His people, all of His chosen ones, come to Christ and are received. What a gracious God we serve. What a patient Father. What a long-suffering Savior. He delays the judgment out of perfect Patience to ensure that none of those whom he has chosen will be left behind. To ensure that all of those who are his will be drawn to Christ by faith. Praise our God for his unparalleled mercy and his persistent patience. But know this also. Hebrews 10 verse 37, Yet a little while and the coming one will come and will not delay. He will bring His judgment in the end. So today is the day of salvation. Now is the time of turning. If you have not yet, you must turn to the Lord today because tomorrow is not promised. The delay will come to an end. And so we must not presume upon God's mercy, but recognizing the mercy He has shown thus far, we must turn now. The day of judgment is coming. But in the meanwhile, he delays out of divine compassion, desiring you and all of those whom he has chosen to be drawn to Christ, desiring to provide the time necessary to prepare every one of his people for eternity. Soon, the last of the elect will be gathered. The last of his children will come home. And on that day the trumpet will sound. The dead will be raised. The judgment seat will be established. And we, the saints from every age, we will worship God, openly extolling him for the divine compassion he has shown and for the perfect timing of his judgment. May that day come soon. And may God be glorified by a vast multitude. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you in your merciful compassion have ordained to delay the judgment until every one of your children is gathered and prepared and equipped for eternity. Cause us, Lord, in recognition of your mercy, to turn wholeheartedly, awakened to the remembrance of your mercy and your promise, embracing wholeheartedly the fullness of salvation that is found in Christ and rejecting the evil words of the scoffers who continue to seek to draw men away. 
Grant that each of these might be drawn to you and that we might give you the glory that you deserve for your patience and your goodness. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This delay of the judgment, this reminder of God's mercy, it's a calling for us to make use of the time. To tell our neighbors, to tell our friends, to be part of gathering in the elect. So let's recognize that. Standing together to sing from Trinity Psalter Hymnal 419. Trinity 419, O Zion, haste your mission high fulfilling.
Let us pray. Father, as we worship you with these, our tithes and our offerings, we pray that you would receive these gifts as a sacrifice of praise unto you. Your people acknowledging that everything we possess, indeed everything we need, comes from your fatherly hand. And may you cause them to be used in a way which will magnify your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Our offering song this morning is number 184. Lord, you love the cheerful giver. 184 will sing all four stanzas.
May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.